0: If you would please uh, open your Bible with me to the book of Acts. We're going to resume our study of the book of Acts in chapter 12. Uh, it has been a, a season uh, where we took a little break for the past four weeks from our study of the book of Acts to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, one thing I do want to emphasize is that every Lord's Day gathering is a celebration that He is risen. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate a risen Savior, the one who is Lord and Master. It's not just a one week and done kind of deal. Our normal mode uh, is that after we seek God, the Holy Spirit, in prayer, we'll read the text under consideration aloud. Then we will uh, divide the passage and uh, make the aim of this morning's sermon the aim of the passage. So would you uh, pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear what the scriptures command and to receive comfort that you give through them. We pray, Lord, that you would make us steadfast in our earnest confidence and dependence upon you. We pray for confidence that your gospel cannot be chained. We ask that you empower us with confidence in your word, faithful endurance in times of tribulation. Help us, Lord, to not be those who shrink back in adversity. We ask, Lord, that you give us a heart that treasures your glory and the gospel above any human comfort that we might desire, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. As you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God from Acts chapter 12. We will look at the whole chapter this morning. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, He did not know what was being done by the, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. When many were gathered together and were praying, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was little no disturbance uh, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. You all may be seated. Our passage today is peculiar in its placement in the book of Acts and in this narrative. This passage is one that could have easily been excluded and it would have taken nothing away from the flow of thought in Luke's account. The timing of events that are unfolding in chapter 12 actually belong chronologically at chapter 11 verse 24. I'm going to read to you 22 through uh, 25 just to kind of get us some context here. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he had came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Luke here is dealing in chapter 11 with the expansion of the church in Antioch. And and he's doing that in chapter 11. But at the same time, see, this persecution that we're looking at in chapter 12 occurs in Jerusalem. So chapter 12 is, is dealing with that. About that time. That's where 1124 would pick up if we're, if we're following this chronologically. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So that gives us the context about that time. About that time, Barnabas had summoned Paul to Antioch from Tarsus. And about that time, this is the story really in the end. It begins with the Death of King Herod. This is how King Herod died, and that's what they're picking up there. But I want to ask us a couple questions. Since our, our, our passage uh, doesn't add to or take away from the narrative of Luke's account, we should question, why is it here? We understand that the Scriptures are dictated, initiated, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, And that the Holy Spirit sovereignly works through uh, and with the human author and their personalities. So to understand why Luke includes this account, we need to see again what his intention for the whole two volumes concerning the gospel of Jesus is. His whole intention from the Luke account in the gospel that is named after him and then Acts, which is sort of uh, the follow-up upon the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. So these whole two volumes, Luke has one intention, one intended purpose. From the uh, reading from chapter 1 from the NSB says, It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. This is his aim, that you would know, that the hearer, the reader, the listener would know the exact truth about the things that have been taught. So I would ask us to ponder this. What exact truth does Luke intend to show uh, by showing us Peter's imprisonment and his miraculous deliverance? What exacting truth does Luke want us to understand concerning the death of Herod Agrippa? What exacting truth does Luke desire the reader to understand concerning the surety of the gospel? What does Luke show us Uh, that the church ought to do in light of the truth that he wants us to have exact knowledge of. These questions are the ones that I'm going to try to unfold for us and answer this morning. The overarching aim of Luke placing this narrative where it is is that in one sense he is declaring without hesitation, without reservation, the sovereignty of God. That God is God, and what He sets to accomplish will be accomplished. There is nothing that will thwart God's sovereign will. He wants us to understand that. The Westminster Divines most aptly describe the sovereignty of God in this way. From all eternity did God, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, "...ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed condition, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon any such conditions. All of that, I would sum in this, that God has unchangeably ordained that whatsoever comes to pass. Whatever has come to pass, whatever will come to pass, God has foreordained that to happen. Another summary that you might understand is this. God has never and we will never look down the tunnel of time and learn anything new. He will never look down the tunnel of time and learn something. God is the possessor of all knowledge. And everything that comes to pass, he has foreordained it to come to pass. He's not contingent on second causes or other conditions. So, what do we do with that? Well, I would say that the key ingredient that the church contributes to the forward move of the gospel since we know that God has foreordained its success. I want you to get that. The gospel will succeed, and God has foreordained it to succeed. In whatever it is that God wants to accomplish, the gospel will, will succeed. So the key ingredient, what is it that the church contributes to? to that forward move of the gospel in light of God's sovereignty. It is prayer. It is prayer. We have established in times past that in evangelism and in the church's effort to that aim, that we are dependent upon God to act upon the soul. As a person hears the gospel proclaimed, we acknowledge that That we can tell the truth of Jesus Christ to as many people uh, and that their salvation is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent on having exactly the right words. It's dependent upon God. It is God who saves. It is in the sovereign will of God to save a soul. So we've established that already. So then what is prayer? Prayer is a declared dependence upon God. We declare in prayer that we are dependent upon God. The church that prays is confident that the cause of the gospel will go forward just as God has ordained it. The church that prays is confident that God's enemies will be defeated. The church that prays is confident in the sovereign will of God and understands that this does not exempt the church from suffering or even martyrdom. The church that prays is confident that the victory of God is assured in the gospel. And the word of God cannot be contained. The word of God cannot be shackled in any way that thwarts its forward progress. The word cannot be bound. Although his servants, those who serve his word may well suffer. And they themselves may well be bound. But the word of God will go forward to accomplish what it is that God has foreordained it to uh, accomplish. This is confidence in those things. Paul's attitude uh, is expressed to Timothy is is the attitude that is remembered by a church who prays. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. So as we uh, study the book of Acts, I want to bring us into this uh, reminder of a pattern. There's a cyclic pattern that is developed in the book of Acts. In part one of the pattern, what happens is that Christian leaders emerge and they preach the gospel. And in part two of this pattern, we see that listeners of the gospel are converted and added to the church. Upon that success, the next cycle seems to begin. Opponents to the gospel emerge. They begin persecuting the church and Christians themselves. And then we see that God's will prevails in the last Cycle, and that he intervenes on behalf of the Christian or the church. And finally, the witness of Jesus Christ as Lord and the word of God expands. We see in today's passage that the key ingredient, the steadfast practice of the church that partners with the sovereign will of God to intervene is prayer. So I want to look more detailed at the first uh, four verses here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who judge Uh, who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So we have the context about this time. About that time, about that time, Barnabas had summoned Paul to Antioch from Tarsus. King Herod Agrippa had died. Herod was, was Herod Agrippa the first. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. He grew up in Rome. And as he grew up in Rome, he had developed some boyhood friends. These boyhood friends had become emperors in little small pockets. And because of his friends, he was granted rule over uh, various territories in Judea Judea, until his his kingdom extended close to the full extent that his grandfather's territory uh, had. And Herod had this desire. He had a big desire to win over the Jews. And specifically, he wanted to find favor with the Pharisees. Herod's persecution of the church and of Christians was aimed at winning even more favor. His desire to crush Christians was to win favor. He was supposing that he would win favor from the Jews. Problem is, he had a problem. See, at best, the Jews would tolerate him because he he was circumcised and he followed customs and traditions of Judaism. But they never fully embraced him. They would have viewed him as kind of a half-breed. So he's trying to win favor. So what does he do? He kills James. This is James, who is the the, uh, brother of John. So let's not confuse him with with James, the brother of Jesus, who penned the book of James. James' uh, death at the hand of Herod Agrippa was particularly gruesome. I want us to get the idea of what kind of guy Herod Agrippa was. It is said that James was sawed in half lengthways. Right, the death of James was foretold by Jesus Christ Himself. Let us turn to Mark's Gospel in chapter ten. I want us—I want us to see what Jesus, uh, how He foretells what happens to James. Mark uh, chapter ten. We're going to start in verse thirty-five. So this is James and his brother John. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to him, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said, to them. The cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or the left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James had this desire uh, to be exalted to a position on the right hand of the kingdom of God, and he asks for favor. And Jesus says, Do you know what the cost of exaltation is? The cost is suffering. Are you prepared to drink the cup that I have to drink? Are you prepared to bat- be baptized with the baptism, baptism that I have been baptized with? And he says, You will. He tells James and John, you will. I think he was more specifically speaking to James, as we can see, because John suffered many things, but James suffered to the point of death, right? Jesus uh, declares to him in verse 39, that is, it has been given to you to drink of the cup of suffering just as I have. But who is exalted and who is not? Either way, that is in the will of the sovereign God. So, back to our text. Herod, uh, seeing that the Jews have given him favor through the death, death of James, he likewise want, has the same plans for the apostle Peter. Peter's arrested, he's put under the guard of 16 men. That is, four squads of four. Now, he, Here's how dangerous Peter was to Herod's thinking. The worst of the worst criminals, two, two guards. But Peter, four squads of four. So he had the men there and then an outer guard and another guard. He's not getting away. He's not getting out. uh, Peter is appointed to death by Herod Agrippa. And he's seeking to remain pleasing to the Jews, and he's he's knowing that, uh, knowing this, he knows that it is against the law, it is against the Jewish law, to execute a man during the Passover celebration. So he took these extra measures to ensure that Peter would not escape. Peter's fate rests in the sovereign will of God. This is what Luke wants us to understand. That the only way of escape, the only way of escape for Peter was the hand of God. The hand of God had to come and release him. There was no way. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Notice the response of the church, understanding that, that Peter's fate is in the hand of God. What does the church do? They pray. They pray. I remember once I uh, interview, interviewed for a pastoral position in a, in a different church. And one cra- question or another that they asked of me uh, led me to discuss with the panel t- the sovereignty of God. Because I could tell from the interview questions, from their stance on things, that they were not so... they were not so submitted to the sovereign will of God. But they thought that church and the things of the church could be conducted through their own human effort. So I began to explain to them about the sovereignty of God. The main person who was interviewing me asked, what good is the sovereign will of God when a person you're ministering to is facing insurmountable odds? That was his question to me. My answer was this. If God is not sovereign over any situation that anyone might face, then, and only then, is all hope lost. Then hope is lost. No further action can take place. Doom and despair are my only choice if God is not sovereign. But if God is sovereign, I have a place for appeal. I have an avenue to understand the tragic circumstances that I find myself in. Reversal of my misfortune is possible. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible. If reversal doesn't happen, it's possible for the sovereign God to give me comfort, to give me endurance, to give me understanding, though it's not guaranteed. A question a lot of people ask, when you say that that we understand the sovereign will of God and that whatever he uh, f- foreordains, it, it comes to pass whatsoever, then why pray? Why pray? That becomes the question. Why pray? Well, the church prays for Peter's release. Didn't they pray for James? I wonder. It doesn't say that they did or they didn't. I read one commentator commentator who uh, boldly declares that they didn't pray for James, and therefore James was sawn in half, but they prayed for Peter, and Peter was released. That's not in the passage. My guess is, and it's a pretty good, it's a biblical guess, that when you look at Acts chapter 2, and it tells us the four things that the church engaged in constantly... Consistently, without wavering, was the Apostles' Doctrine, in fellowship, in communion, and in prayer. So this was their habit. So, of course, they prayed for James, just as they prayed for Peter. James was sawn in half. uh, J.I. Packer writes an answer to this. Why does the church pray if God is sovereign? If whatsoever he wills will come to pass. He answers this in a way, I think. It says, quote, because Christians recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that they already have and all the good that we can ever hope for in the future. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. Every good thing we desire for ourselves and our and others, we understand must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from God's hand. Prayer is the key, key ingredient in the life of the church. Because God is sovereign and we are not. Prayer is the key ingredient in the midst of persecution because the church that entrusts herself to the sovereign hand of God, if it is his will to deliver that church, to deliver that Christian, it is God that must act. So prayer is the key ingredient to our Christian life. It's a key ingredient to understanding who we are. Dependent, helpless. I bet you there's not a man in here who likes to admit that, that I am helpless, that I am dependent. Men like to say and think, me being one of them, if a problem arises, I have skills, intellect, talent, energy. I can make things happen. But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to those things, we have to understand we are out of our depth. We are dependent, helpless, hopeless, unless we are those who pray. And I think that men who pray are at their strongest when they're on their knees and they're honest before God. I need your intervention if anything is going to change. God is going to have to act. We can think about our own salvation in that way, isn't it true? We sang many, many songs this morning. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It is the one who knows in their core being that they cannot reconcile themselves to God. They can't do enough good work to outbalance the sinful nature that they have. It is those who fall on their knees and say, God, help me. And God's answer is, Jesus paid it all. And the scriptures tell us there is no boasting, right? There is no boasting. We boast only in Jesus Christ. We sang it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's a declaration of dependence, isn't it? We men, especially men, I think, but women, I'm sure, as well, like to declare their independence. I like to declare my independence. This is Independence Day. I am able to, to take it all on. Great strength comes for the Christian when they finally get on their knees and they pray. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from what all the Jewish people were expecting. Luke wants us to understand that the deliverance of Peter is miraculous. The sovereign hand of God is responsible. No other explanation can be given. Peter is bound by chains between two soldiers. Sentries are guarding the door. Peter demonstrates that he fully trusts in God's sovereignty. He fully trusts that whatsoever God decrees for him will certainly come to pass, whether it's death in the same fashion as James or deliverance. So Peter does what? He sleeps. Peter sleeps. He's in a desperate position, isn't he? Peter sleeps. Peter trusts in the sovereign hand of God. Whether he delivers me to life or he delivers me over to death, his will be done. This is Peter's heart. Peter gets poked awake from a deep sleep by an angel of the Lord, and the chains fall off. I was thinking about that whole thing about the chains falling off of Peter. Sometimes we can feel like we are shackled by a sin. By a sin that that besets us. We can feel chained and doomed to continue in the things that we even desire in our own hearts to be freed from. The key ingredient to your freedom my friend, if that is where you are today, is prayer. Prayer, prayer, and more prayer. When you think that you've prayed enough, pray some more. Hebrews 12 tells us, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Prayer is our consistent resistance against besetting sin. Entrusting yourself to the one who shed his blood for your sin. Declaring your dependence upon God and his Christ. And asking that the shackles be removed. Earlier in that passage in Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to look to Jesus Prayer is the key ingredient of a declaration in the trust in God, a declaration of what Christ has done for us in the past, that it was a good and perfect gift, trusting that the supply of good that God the Father has for us in Christ Jesus can never be exhausted. It can never be exhausted. When we think the goodness of God, has He's given us all the good that He could give us, God is not like us who runs out of things. He doesn't run out of goodness. He doesn't run out of the good gifts that he wants for his people. I think he's just looking for us to pray. I'm totally convicted on this, by the way, guys. I, you know, that I am. I pray and I think I pray a lot. I know this, though. I don't pray enough. I know I don't. I don't pray consistently enough. I don't pray constantly enough. And I don't pray with that same sort of trust that Peter had. Think of the trust Peter had. There he is in prison, waiting on the sovereign hand of God, and he sleeps. Sleeps. He sleeps because he trusted God with his whole life, with everything. Everything. Whether you deliver me or you don't, I trust in you. That's the heart of Peter. I want that heart. That I may face something really horrible, but I trust that the horrible is for me. I pray that you deliver me. That's my will. But I pray that that is your will as well, right? Trust so I can rest in him and what he's done and what he can do. Looking again in our passage, in verse 11, Peter came to himself. He says, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from what all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened and they saw that it was him, they were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and he went to another place. Peter, at first, if this is a hand of God, he doesn't know. Or is this a vision that's born out of a dream for his release? He longs for his release. And then he comes to the realization that God's hand had delivered him from death. And the group, as they're continuing to pray for Peter's release, when he comes knocking on the door, the church, although they're entrusting themselves to the sovereign hand of God to deliver Peter, they assume that the servant girl must be out of her mind because um, it is impossible that Peter is freed. Rhoda's beside herself, and she's overwhelmed by the miraculous deliverance of Peter, that she's in disbelief of this, but yet there he is, and so she leaves him at the gate. I love this part of the passage, you know, because here's what it tells us about our prayer, I think. That in our prayers, sometimes they're feeble. As wishy-washy and as incomplete as our faith tends to be, God is not stopped by the frailty and fickleness of our faith in him. The sovereign will of God works on behalf of the praying person of the church, and it's not dependent upon our faithfulness, but it is dependent upon his faithfulness. God's sovereignty is a great comfort for believers who understand their propensity to fail. The key ingredient for us is prayer. As we pray, we know that our prayers are feeble and weak. As we put our faith and our trust in God, we know that our trust wavers, our faith bounces, but he's not dependent upon that. That God is sovereign over all those things and he works with knuckleheads like you and me. He gives us good gifts because he's good. He answers our prayers because he wants to, because he's for us. Now when day came, there was uh, no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The exacting truth that Luke is delivering to us here in chapter 12 so far is that God is sovereign. And as such, the church displays her trust in the sovereignty of God through prayer. God delivers his people by his sovereign hand according to his own goodness and his own faithfulness. And is not thwarted by the sinfulness or fickle faith of his people. In our last section here, we see another truth. The forward move of the gospel cannot be thwarted by any human agency. Persecution of the church will not undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ from reaching God's intended plan for expansion. And another truth: God will not set aside his glory for another. Here has big plans. He has big plans for expanding his own influence, um, and he attempts to curry favor from, from the Jews by persecuting Christians. He carries favor from his Roman boyhood friends in gaining territory for the Roman Empire. He uses his gift of communication to exalt himself among the people. The sovereign hand of God strikes him dead. But notice what it says, is that the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke has confidence in the forward move of the gospel and the power of God's word to accomplish the plan of God. I ask us this, would we pray differently if Jesus Christ was our number one priority? Would we pray differently? What do you suppose God's number one priority is? His glory. God is glorified in increasing measure as the kingdom of God is expanded through the proclamation of His word concerning His Christ. Remember how the Lord's prayer begins? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it has been appointed to you to suffer, it is the will of God, and it will serve to glorify him and advance his kingdom purposes. If God delivers you from persecution at the hands of evil men, It is the will of God and will serve to glorify Him and advance His kingdom purposes. John Piper writes this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. The key ingredient in the Christian's life is dependent prayer, entrusted to the sovereign will of God. When the advance of the kingdom is the priority of the church, our prayers change. If the kingdom of God and His gospel and that forward move is our aim, our prayers change. Amid persecution and suffering, then the Christian will begin to pray like Jesus. Father, if you desire, you could take this situation away from me. And my personal desire is that you do so. But our our prayers will change to be like Jesus in saying this, but either way, I know that whatever your will is, it is to advance your good purposes. It is to advance your good purposes in adding people like me, lost sinners without hope. It will serve that purpose to add people like me to your kingdom. So we say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So the key ingredient for the Christian who desires the sovereign will of God in their life is prayer. As we looked at 1 Thessalonians this morning, we said, what is the desire? What is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians tells us to pray prayers of thanksgiving in all circumstances For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In all circumstances, to have a thankful heart. That is, if the glory of God and the gospel is the Christian's priority, it changes how we pray.